Hello, friends. Welcome once again, everybody, to another episode of Improv and Magic. I am your host, as always, LD, and I'm very happy to welcome a special friend of mine and a wonderful performer to the podcast. My guest today is Kathleen Kenny. Cat, as we all call her, is a very talented actor and improviser. She also teaches acting and improv at Bob Carter's Actors Workshop and Repertory Company in West Palm Beach, Florida, as well as at Gold Coast Down Syndrome Organization in Boca Raton, Florida. This was such a great conversation we had. We learned a lot about Cat's history, and we were surprised to see how similar our personal experiences were. And we also spend a little time talking about how improv truly is for everybody, no matter who you are. Kat is such a burst of sunshine, and everybody lights up whenever she comes in and does her thing. I hope you all enjoy this. Here's my guest, Kathleen Kenny. I am so happy right now to be with one of my great friends in the improv world. She's lovely. She's amazing. She's Kathleen Kenny. Hey, Kat. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, I've admired you for such a long time now, and I'm very I'm very happy that we could have this conversation now. Dude, thank you. Um, honestly, I have no chill about this. I was so honored to be asked. Um, so just thank you for thinking to include me. Yeah, and I... As you know, we go back. I really have nothing but respect and admiration for you as well and what you do and how you do it. So, yeah. Ditto. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> it seems like there's going to be a lot of thank yous back and forth in this conversation. <laughs> thank you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, well, it looks like you're currently talking to me from one of the offices of the theater that you work at, right? Actors yes. Rep? Yeah. I'm in the front office of Actors Rep Theater. Yeah. Um, I, I love that place. I love that it's like a little small place. It's like a nice little hidden gem. And there's a lot that goes on at that theater, you know, not just improv, but you have like a lot of plays and all sorts of different stuff. Yeah, it's a not-for-profit theater company. They do, um, like, like you said, plays. And the mission statement of Actors Rep is really to do socially relevant plays. And so um, we do a lot of things that have to deal with things that are going on you know, socially in our world. Uh, we did Hands Up, which is about police brutality against Black people and people of color. We're doing the Laramie Project. Um, they had a, a play, A Kid Like Jake, about a year ago that was about gender identity. So it's interesting. Mm. It just kind of gets you thinking a little bit. Yeah. And also classes and improv, the whole kit and caboodle. All that fun stuff. <laughs> All that fun stuff. All that stuff that keeps the doors open. I yeah. get you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we should also mention that uh, your husband is also a wonderful performer named Nathan, who I've gotten uh, the pleasure to know also. What's it like living in a house of two improvisers? You know, honestly, I feel like probably more boring than people would think. I get that all the time. <laughs> like, what is it like in your home? And I think people imagine just like off the wall bits and, you know, performances, um, but probably pretty boring. Um, I, I am the queen of bits. <laughs> I'm the I'll do a bit and I won't let it die for days, for weeks, for months, if necessary. Um, but yeah, he is a talented improviser and teacher. I'm biased. 
of course. Of course. Uh, We perform together and um, we sometimes teach together at like camps and stuff. And we're really lucky in that we genuinely like each other because I've had a lot of people be like, so you guys spend a lot of time together, Um, (laughs) which we do, you know, um, know, what is that like? But yeah, we teach together at a few different places, um, perform together and we just, we get along. So, and we balance each other pretty well, I think. So yeah. It definitely seems like you two balance each other a lot. Yeah. I'm an extrovert. He's an introvert. Um, He's a little more logical. I'm a little more hippy dippy. (laughs) We're rubbed off on each other, which is cool. You know? Right. That's very cool. You know, it's funny. uh, My father-in-law jokes all the time about how, when I'm on stage, I'm like this explosive guy and I'm like, no fear. But then when I'm in like social settings, I, t- I tend to get a little bit more quiet, which yeah. blows his mind for some reason. It blows my mind too. And I don't really have a cohesive answer as to why. Um, does that kind of, do you think, do you think of yourself kind of like that? Or are you kind of bigger on stage than you are with other people? Oh gosh, that is, you know, that's interesting for me to think about because I think I am bigger on stage than I am in real life. Um, when I'm teaching, I almost kind of becomes a, a, an onstage, not like persona, because like I'm authentically who I am. But there definitely is like an element of performing, I think, when I'm teaching. But you put me in a social setting, and I definitely do withdraw a little bit. Not as much as Nate. He's a little more introverted than I am. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it depends where I am. But I think I can definitely be, be bigger on stage than in person, you know? Yeah. I think yeah. it's true with a lot of us performers that do this. Oh, yeah. Because you, know, you and I are definitely not the only ones. I mean, I've seen a lot of people who, you know, when they're on stage, they're so alive. And when they're off stage, they're like very, very quiet. Do you see that particularly in students a lot too? I do. Actually, yeah, I think there, I have some students who come to me like for an improv 101 class and they'll be like, you know, I'm taking this class because I'm so shy or I'm looking to get confidence. Um, and I've had students be like, I don't know if I can do the showcase. We have a showcase at the end of the 101 um, and be very nervous about it and oftentimes not invite anyone despite my protestations of I promise you'll wish you had. Um, and you'll get this person who is very kind of shy, reserved. But after like a week or two in class, they really start to come come alive, come out of their shell, you know, doing the games, doing the scene work in the class. But then when they get on stage, I want to say, seriously, I'm not a statistics person, but nine times out of 10, um, they just, I'm like, who is this individual? Where has this person been? But yeah, I think it's, it's, um, yeah, you, you give yourself permission under the lights, especially if you can't see the audience to sort of step into another version of yourself that you might not be comfortable doing in an office setting in a cocktail party setting. But yeah, I do see it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love teaching improv to shy people because I love seeing the growth that you see. I mean, you see people really transformed. I know you must've seen this so many times. Um, the transformation is what I think has been really appealing to people lately and wanting to get into improv. Cause you know, at, at just the funny, we don't get people that sign up because, Oh, I want to be an improviser. We get people who, you know, Google things like, how do I get over shyness? Mm-hmm. And of course, one of the top answers that has been coming up is improv classes as, as, as you know. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. And also I think there's value too in, like the environment of an improv class where I think people come in sometimes they're like, well, I'm going to take this class because I'm going to be forced 
to be funny or clever or quick. And you're really not. And so I think that sort of happens organically when you're given permission to be your authentic self, which I'm sure sounds hippy dippy. But one of the first things I tell people, and I will repeat frequently in a class, is you do not have to be funny. You do not have to be clever. You do not have to be entertaining. Your scenes do not have to be funny. Do not have to be clever. Do not have to be entertaining. Because if you come into a class feeling like I've got to be freaking Robin Williams, that's a lot of pressure and it's not sustainable for anyone. But I think if you're given permission to just create and see where it goes and not have to be the life of the party, that person's version of freedom, artistically, creatively free, whatever that looks like, will start to emerge. Yeah. And so that might be big and boisterous, but it might not be. And that's okay too, you know? Yeah. And, and I also love the experience of seeing students do something just because that's their truth at the moment. And then they get a big reaction and that kind of catches them off guard. Like, oh, wow, I, I didn't know I could do something like that. I hear that a lot. I wasn't even trying to be funny. I'm like, bingo. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that the best feeling? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. To me, that's like better than drugs. I, I love that feeling. Not that I would know, of course. <laughs> I'm rolling right now. Is that what the kids call it? Rolling? I don't know. I yeah. don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm lit, but in a different way. In a yeah. different way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I always like to start from the beginning with everybody. So we'll do that with you. Uh, where did you grow up? You know, I'm a native, a Florida native. Um, I think you are too, Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I was born at Palm Beach Gardens Hospital and grew up in Jupiter, Florida. Um, wow. Lived in the same house my whole life. My mom still lives there. Um, technically to Cuesta, like right in the county line. Technically over in Martin County, but like we lived our life in Palm Beach County. Um, yeah, I was homeschooled. I have a twin sister, Sarah. We're fraternal. We don't look anything alike. You have a alike. twin sister? I have a twin sister. I yes. did not know that. She's my only sibling. She's very talented. Uh, she's a talented artist and um she has a lot of musical productions she's also a talented teacher and choreographer um and actor i, I you know i'm biased i think she's great um but yeah it's just the two of us and we were homeschooled until high school and you know started taking like dance lessons pretty early on mm. um and i was one of those people who was just so shy ld when i tell you like I couldn't look people in the eye. I remember someone would come up and be like, oh, are they twins? Because we're fraternal, but maybe we were dressed alike. And I would just stare at the ground and just wish myself away. Um, yeah, so I, I used to be very shy. Didn't want to talk to people, couldn't really articulate what I was feeling. And hmm. that's clearly not the case anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, obviously. Uh, what was, uh, was your sister shy or was she more extroverted? She was more extroverted. Yeah, she was like, we took these dance classes and she would be in the front row with tons of personality and liked talking to people. And I'd be in the back row, loving being on stage, but very reserved, you know? So there was sort mm. of that twin thing that sometimes happens that yin yang. We've since become a little more yin or yang together, but yeah. You know, I've often heard with twins that sometimes there's something that happens where the two tend to be in sort of competition with each other. Did that ever happen with you and your sister? You know, I don't think so. And I'm really going to think about that. But no, I never felt like I was competing with her. I think we both have kind of our own lanes a little bit. Like um, she was like the more extroverted one when we were a kid. I was the more introverted one. Um, yeah, I, don't, I don't know. It just didn't. I never felt like we were in competition with each other, which is good. I guess. That is good. Yeah. 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 So you being a, a shy kid, 
how did performing come into your life? <laughs> so, you know, we we're doing these dance classes as a kid. Like I said, I love getting on stage. I loved it. I love the smell of the hairspray, putting my hair in a bun, like the whole process, the lights. But I was super, super shy. Um, my parents ended up splitting up when I was about 13, I want to say. And so we couldn't afford the dance lessons anymore. So my mom found the Burt Reynolds Institute, the Burt Reynolds Institute for Theater Training, which was in DeQuesta, kind of around the corner from us. They had a summer camp and she ended up working out where we could do like one pay for one, the other go for free or some sort of scholarship for which I'm forever grateful because I feel like it changed my life. We took this theater camp and I just started to kind of fall into, fall into my authentic self a little bit for lack of a better way of putting it. I like legit remember being on stage. We had a camp showcase. I can't remember what, what the play was, but I was a character talking to a man I was in love with who had tuberculosis and I was moving <laughs> him and it was dramatic. And at the very end I said, goodbye, Stefan. It was supposed to be goodbye, Stephen, but I read the PH, you oh. know, and, but I just went goodbye, Stefan and turned around and the lights went to blackout and there was this dramatic pause and the audience burst into applause. And I remember that moment. And I was like, oh, shoot, this is good. This is good shit. I want more of this. Um, and so from that moment on, I sort of, um, yeah, fell in love with it. And I have to say, it wasn't so much the applause. I remember that. I remember being like, I just did that. That was amazing. But it really was being in an environment that fostered creativity. There was something about I think most theater camps, most theater programs, where if my opinion, if they're done correctly, in addition to teaching the art form, it's giving you permission to thrive in your own creative capacity, whatever that means. Like, let your freak flag fly. You have permission to be wonderfully weird. And I found that and it unleashed my weirdness because I'm a weird person. I am. I have, <laughs> you know, and it was okay. And so I think when you're given that permission, you're, you feel free to risk. You feel free to put yourself out there. And I don't think I had been given that before. You know, I'll tell you where my head is going right now. In yeah. a general way, you're able to say you've been taught by Burt Reynolds. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> in a general way, I met him a few times. Did you really? I did. Yeah, I met him just a few times. Um, we got involved. And that's so after we took this camp, that's how my theater, my whole performance track sort of started. There was this group called the Youth Actors Guild or YAG. And you would go on Saturdays and get like free classes and whatever you wanted to study. And in exchange, you would do all of the technical responsibilities for the main stage productions. And because my sister and I were homeschooled for much of that time, we were able to be there during tech rehearsals during the day. And we would do follow spots and light board and soundboard and props. Um, and so frequently, not frequently, but sometimes, you know, uh, Mr. Reynolds would come in and we get to see him or talk to him or whatever. Um, but that's sort of how I got my love of theater was being around it, doing the behind the scenes as well as the training of it. Yeah. Well, you know, I have to ask this now, what sure. was Burt Reynolds like? Um, I, I feel like he seemed nice. Honestly, every time I met him, it was just like, hi, you know, and I'd kind of have to reintroduce myself because he didn't remember. I wasn't the only person there. He wasn't like, oh, Cat Kenny, hello, my best friend. Um, but you know, it was always very just a little rushed, but he was polite. And um, yeah, he seemed like a nice human. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's good to hear. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I haven't had, I haven't heard any stories about Burt Reynolds, negative or positive. He but... keyed my car. No, like nothing like that. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And again, with these big Hollywood folk, you never know. You right. Never know. 
<laughs> Edge my house. I don't even know why. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so was it during that period of learning theater at, at this camp? Did you try, did you all of a sudden emerge to become more extrovert and, and did you feel like you, you found yourself a lot more? It did. And it was a process for me, honestly. Um, yeah, like 13 to, yeah, I, it took, there was a lot of unfolding with me, like a lot of like getting more comfortable and finding different parts of myself. Um, so I went to high school for the first time um, when I was 16, because we were homeschooled until high school. And I entered what I thought would be my sophomore year. Um, but they were like, no, you have to start freshman year. Even though we tested at the right level, um, it wasn't certified. Like when my mom was doing homeschooling, it was, she didn't sign a piece of paper or something mm. like it wasn't, I can't think of it. It wasn't accredited or something like she was supposed to do something the year before. And so even though I tested at the right level, they're like, you're going to have to start again. And that was a huge hit to my confidence. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And it sort of really shook me as a person. Cause it's like, I'm going to be a 16 year old freshman. Is this what I wanted to do? And I was embarrassed by it. And I hit it the whole time I was in high school. In fact, I don't really talk about it. Um, and there's still like a little bit of embarrassment about that. Um, but I decided to complete it. My sister was like, Oh hell no. And she went back to homeschool and finished virtually. Um, but that sort of set me back in a weird way. But the theater department at, I went to South Fork High because I was in Jupiter, but had to go to Stewart. Um, right. I sort of became a big fish in a small pond, if that makes sense. Not like it was a small pond, but um, I I was able to audition for things and get really good parts and, you know, do well in that theater department. And that was another unfolding of, okay, I, you know, this place where I felt like I was already failing when I came here, I was able to flourish um, and I went to, you know, states and the international thespian competition and that sort of thing. And was like, I like this. I really like it. So I digress. Um, I ramble a lot, friend. But yeah, it's sort of. Please just- feel free to ramble as much as you want. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But it was, it was a process. And then I, I went to college, um, University of Utah at the time. They had a really great actor training program. I'm sure it's still great. Um, but that's what took me to Salt Lake City. And um, again, I went there and it. It, it was like a hit in my confidence a little bit. Like, oh, am I as good as these people? Am I, you know, the vampires in our brains are so powerful. And I oh, don't yes. think I'm unique in that. I think I would feel like I figured it out. And then I do something new and be like, I'm worthless. I'm not worthy. I figured it out. And, you know, I don't know if I'm good at this. Um, so my, it's sort of been an unfolding of that. And it took me a long time. I'm almost going to be 45 in August. And I feel like, you know, only the last few years have I felt like, oh, I'm sure hopefully I'm still unfolding, right? These parts of myself. Otherwise, what are we doing? But um, it has, it's been a process for me. Yeah. Yeah. Was it kind of a shock to you to go from homeschooling to high school or was it kind of smooth and natural for you? I ask because I'm always curious about that because I have friends who are homeschooled and then go to school and I'm always curious like what that transition is like for them. Yeah. What's it like? Um, It was weird for me. The anxiety that I had was, oh. I don't even know what to compare it to Um, because I just never been in that setting before I had, you know, we did, I think it was like more Montessori testing, not standardized testing as kids. And so I, it was difficult, a lot of that stuff. Um, So it was a culture shock, but I had socialized as a kid. Like I said, I did dance lessons. I did some theater things. We had a, you know, I was grew up in the days where kids would play in the neighborhood. We play kickball and hide and seek and, sardines in the middle of the night, you know, ride our bikes everywhere. Um, But it was a culture shock. It was strange to me how much time felt wasted because Mm. when it's just two of you, 
we had a lot of time for make believe. We had a lot of time for reading and playing outside, but you know, you can't do that when you're running a high school. So it was strange to me to get permission to go to the bathroom, like that scene in Mean Girls where she has <laughs> to get like like I related to that. Um, but yeah, some things were just weird. All of these rules that I didn't quite like I understood them, but they felt superfluous to me. Yeah. Yeah. And the social, there was like the social constructs of like these the groups of high school, right? Like we had what we called the hick group, which is not politically correct in any way anymore. That's just what the kids called them, like the cowboys kind of. We had the mm-hmm. goths, or they were known as the freaks back then. Again, problematic. Um, theater dweebs, band kids, and just kind of navigating these different groups of people that I had seen in movies and read about, but being a part of it was like, what the hell group do I belong to? Uh, spoiler alert, it was theater geeks. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it amazing how like, and I don't know if it's still the same today, but you know, in high school, it's a, it's a period of time, as you said, where it's all about what group are you in? And what was interesting for me is that I didn't think I really fit into any group. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I mean, there was the cool kids and there was the athletes and there was uh, the gauze. For some reason in my whole high school, we call them the rockers, which is a totally weird, stupid name. I don't know who came up with that. comes up with these names rockers is valid i'll support it why not yeah <laughs> i think rockers sounds more pc than goth to be honest with you it does. we called them they were the freaks and they were self-prescribed They're like yeah i'm a freak like yeah <laughs> yeah but you know what's interesting is that i remember my freshman year you know i kind of had this thing where yeah i would like to be part of the cool kids but i'll be honest the majority of the cool kids in my high school were quite frankly idiots in my yeah. opinion and so I had uh, my freshman year, I had this one guy who immediately became my best friend and neither of us were in any of these social groups. And I was just like, you know what, to hell with it. I'm just going to stick with my best friend. And then yeah. my sophomore year, another kid, uh, a new kid came and kind of joined us and we we became like a, a, a trio and we were just like our own band of brothers. And so we were kind of like the anti of any other group. We were, we were just happy to be a, ourselves. We didn't really I care about that. what the cool kids were doing. I love that. Yeah, I let go of that too very quickly. I have to be honest. Very quickly, I was just like, all right, not I'm not too, you know, I'm concerned with that. And it's funny. So I say theater geeks um, or theater people, whatever, but that wasn't quite my personal tribe either. Um, I brushed up against all of these different groups and the worlds collided. So I had like some advanced placement classes, which kind of put me with the cool kids, but I didn't fit. But I felt like I was one of those people who knew everybody in different groups, but didn't quite belong. But I had like a handful of people um, who belonged to different groups. And we'd, you know, try to eat lunch together and that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, it's so amazing. I was exactly the same way. Yeah. It's so amazing how our stories are so similar. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't part of any particular group. It was just me and and my two best friends, Jose and George. And that's all we needed. That's all we needed. It's all we need. It's all you need in life. That's like a lesson. You just need (laughs) just a couple, you know, couple people in your pocket who are there for you and you're going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. Do you think it's still kind of like that now? Cause I'm asking, cause I know you also do classes for like kids and, and teenagers. Do you, do you still see those, um, those groups being defined in high school or do you think now it's, it's a little bit better? You know, the truth is I don't know. That's a, that's, I would love to know. I would hope it's better. So I do a lot of teaching, um, like, you know, I'm a self-employed full-time teaching artist. And so I teach mostly at like theaters and programs like that. I do go into high schools. Um, I work for Arts for All, which I do um, 
musical theater and movement classes for teens with disabilities and all abilities. So I'm in the high schools quite a bit, maybe like three or four times a week, but I'm just there to do a class and it's in the ESE hallway normally. So I don't have a lot of interaction with kids like in schools to see how they separate, you know, because at lunchtime to me, that's the big, that's the big thing. I remember being in school, everyone kind of go their own corners, you know? Um, So I don't, the truth is, I don't know. I would like to think that it's not as divided and it probably is because I think so much of being an adolescent, so much of being a kid is trying to figure out who you are and who accepts you. And so I would be inclined to say it's probably still pretty similar, though I hope it's not. Yeah. Well, I know acceptance is definitely the big thing that you strive for in high school. I'd say more than trying to achieve well academically, so much of your personality tends to get formed by who's accepted you. Yeah, absolutely. Man, in life, honestly, because I I think that follows us. I do. I think whether you're an artist or whether you're working in business finance or whatever, we all just want to be accepted. And I think that's something we chase I don't know if chase is the right word, but I think we're looking for validation. For I don't think that goes away. I think we're looking for people to say, I see you, you matter, regardless of how you make your money or what you do for a living, um, and you you belong. I feel like we always want that. Yeah. Yeah. So true for me. Yeah. So so what was life like um learning in Salt Lake City? <laughs> great. You know, um, I, like I said, I was a Florida native. I saw snow for the first time. Um, the actor training program was really intensive. So that was really my existence. You know, we went through the same group of people. I want to say there were like 12 of us in our program. We moved through those four years and it was an actor training program within like a liberal arts education. So, um, it was a full schedule without the required, you know, math and reading and all those sort of things. So, I didn't do any sororities or anything like that. I didn't want to, and I also didn't have the time. Um, But just a lot of throwing myself into school. Um, So many things working at the same time, scenes and monologues and plays and stagecraft. And I also worked in college, you know? Um, So my life was school and work. And it was interesting. Um, You know, Salt Lake City, Utah has a huge LDS population, um, which is, you know, the Mormon church. So it's a Mm -hmm. very conservative state. But Salt Lake City um, was sort of the place to be if you were not LDS or if you're a liberal, which I, you know, I am, whatever. So I I used to do, um, and and the weekends I go out, there were a lot of drag shows at the time, at the time, this is what, 25 years ago, 20 years ago, um, Salt Lake City had the most... um, like the biggest gay population per capita of other states. Mm. And so um, we'd go to drag shows and I did backup dancing with my friend Francis for drag shows for a little while. And so I didn't quite feel like it was as huge a culture shock as I would expect. The thing that uh, surprised me was how very white it was, how so Caucasian. I'd been there for like a week or two and all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, that's what it is. I haven't seen, I really haven't seen any black people or people of color. And once I realized that, that was a adjustment for me, just, you know, how Caucasian it was. Uh, that was, <laughs> that was an experience that made me feel a little weird because I wasn't used to that. You know, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. It, it's always such a culture shock to go from anywhere in South Florida to anywhere else in the country, really. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I lived in New York for a little while. After I graduated, I went to New York. I lived in Queens and I lived in Rigo Park. And at the time, Rigo Park was the place where it had supposedly the most diversity, where if you stood in a street corner, in theory, you could hear the most languages being spoken there than any other place in the country. I read that. I don't know if it's true, um, but I <laughs> loved that. I mean, you know, everyone kind of, again, similar to high school, right? New York has its own groups. Um, so even though it's this melting pot, everyone is sort of in their own little group, you know, the Greek Orthodox, um, the Jewish Orthodox, um, whatever. I see all these different groups in their own little corners. Um, but I love the diversity there. Wow. Um, what were some things that you learned while you were studying at Utah that really helped you develop uh, as an actor? You know, I'm trying to think there were so many things, scene study, speech and diction, all of that. For me, I think I left that program. I got excellent training. I really did. Um, and I left that program thinking that in order to be like a successful actor or artist, you kind of had to pick a box and fit in it, maybe for castability or that sort of thing. And I don't think that was so much taught is what I gathered from it. Um, and so that's something that I think held me back a little bit was the idea that if I was going to be a professional actor, I had to like mold myself into what were people were looking for rather mm. than just being my most, I keep saying this a lot, but that's, you know, my most authentic self. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but for me, that was what I left with. And I think it was almost a little hindrance for a little while until I realized, oh no, you don't have to. But aside from that, just really good theater training. I don't know how to be more specific, but just, yeah, I learned so many things that I didn't know. Um, movement, speech and diction, um, just the things that go into it that you wouldn't really think of, you know, your whole instrument. Yeah. Were there any particular productions that you did in college that really resonated with you or made you feel like, wow, this is such a special moment that I'm having? Oh, I had so many of those. I loved the productions I got to do. Um, one of my favorites was one of the smaller parts I had, and I freaking loved it. It was The Love of the Nightingale. It was the it was actually the first thing I did when I was in college. It was an ensemble. It's like a Greek theater, like a contemporary Greek piece, um, kind of rewritten. And uh, I just remember I, it was so physical and um, so ensemble-based. And one of my, my most favorite things that I did, it was in the round – and it just sort of, yeah, there was a freedom to it. Some of it was improv. They would give the actors permission to like improvise movement and physicality that became a big part of the big, big part of the show. And that really resonated with me. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just, I loved all of the productions that I did. Again, not to be vague, but I really got something from each one. And every time I was in a production, I felt fortunate. I felt just fortunate to have a chance to be a part of it. Yeah. You know, it was interesting. My sophomore year uh, in college, I was also studying theater and uh, it was during the winter semester. Cool. Sorry, I didn't interrupt you. I didn't know that about you. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm telling you, our our worlds are colliding so much. It's so interesting. Yeah. (laughs) I might also be married to Nathan. Who knows? (laughs) But uh... (laughs) Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. (laughs) But you know what's funny? Uh, my sophomore year, I think the best thing that happened to me was uh, my freshman year, I would always audition for our, for our shows and I would always get casted in something. And then I remember my sophomore year in the winter semester, we had like a new theater teacher that mm-hmm. joined and we were doing Little Shop of Horrors, Ooh. which everyone does because yeah. it's a 
it's a damn good show. Yeah. And I auditioned and I actually didn't get cast in anything. Oof. Yeah. And obviously at first when I did not see my name on the, on the cast sheet, it was a big hit to the gut. But then after a while, it actually turned out to be the best thing for me because when you get into this business, that's kind of something you have to deal with. You know, you're not going to get everything. And so I was actually very thankful that I worked backstage because I also was part of the uh, of the of the tech crew in mm-hmm. our in our theater as well. So I, I got to work backstage. So I was still a part of it, but I wasn't on stage. But I felt like having that first moment of rejection was it sounds negative, but it was actually one of the best things that could have happened to me at that moment. I hear that. I remember that feeling of looking at the call sheet and sometimes not seeing your name on there, because let's be honest, most of acting in that profession is no. Most times you will not get a callback, having mm-hmm. nothing to do with your talent. Just most times that's what you're going to hear. And I do remember that feeling and being like, okay, I get to get used to this. It's not personal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, we often don't realize that these big time actors that you see in these big TV shows or movies, you don't think about the fact that before they got that one yes, there were like 50 no's right before that. At least. Right. And I think yeah. the idea of what it what it is to make it as an actor, um, we have this perception that if someone makes it as an actor, they are Viola Davis. Right. Or Chadwick Boseman or Meryl Streep right. or whatever. But most actors who make it. Um, to me, that's you work regularly. You are able to make your living from the in- industry. Um, maybe you're part of the union, right? Um, SAG mm-hmm. or equity. Um, but a lot of these actors who are making it in professional, successful actors, you don't know their name. You might not even recognize their face. Um, but there is this idea of like, if you're not on Broadway or you're not the lead in a movie or a show, you haven't made it. And um, yeah, redefining success, I think is important for actors. Yeah. yeah. So what did you do after college? After college, I came back to Florida for two years and waited tables and took some acting classes and that sort of thing. And I was like, I want to move to New York. So we moved to New York. We borrowed uh, Bob Carter's truck. That's a guy, the artistic director of this theater, left our car, packed the back of the truck with very few belongings and very little money and uh, went to New York City and got an apartment and lived there for about six or seven years and I want to say most of our time was spent paying the rent. And that's real. Like most, we had this tiny little studio apartment in Rigo Park, Queens. We worked at TGI Fridays in Times Square. And most of my time was spent just doing like mass mailings for auditions. I'd go on some auditions. It would take all day. I was non-union. And I very quickly realized that I did not enjoy the process of auditioning. Um, I just didn't. I didn't like what went with it. And that was disappointing for me. I sort of had a, that, that was a pivotal moment of, well, what am I going to do then? If I don't enjoy this, what the, the process of auditioning is what an actor does. What does that mean for me? Um, and I did a show um, when I was there, um, Footloose. It was terrible. It was probably the worst direct uh, production I've ever done. It was off, 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 off Broadway. Um, all the stories I could tell you. And um, I was like, this isn't, this isn't scratching the itch for me. Um, and when I was there, like the last little bit, when I decided to move back home to figure out my life and what I was doing, um, I went to a show finally at UCB Theater and, you know, saw Amy Poehler and Ask Cat and was like, what? Yes, I remember improv. I did this in college a little bit. I was part of a short form team and fell in love with it, maxed out my credit card, my Discover card, and just went through as quickly as I could through the, the levels, moved back home and 
yeah, that's sort of, I'm grateful for New York because it let me realize what I don't want to do. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I came home and fell in love with teaching. And I was someone who in college, I, I'm ashamed to say this, but it's a fact, I'd you know, meet theater education majors. In the back of my mind, I was like, oh, theater education. Well, I'm going to be a professional theater actor. I, that's what I want to do. Um, that, that, you know, saying those who can't do teach um, was kind of in my brain. But when I was in New York, I'd come back for the summers to teach the theater programs at the theater. And I loved it. I loved it. And it was, it took some kind of rewiring of my brain to be like, this is okay. Um, but it brought me tremendous joy and continues to bring me tremendous joy. I'm a performer. I'm an actor. I still do that. And first and foremost, I think I'm a teacher. And it took to New York and a whole identity crisis to realize that. But man, I yeah. love teaching, LD. I love it. I think it's, I just love it. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You're actually not the first person I've talked to who said that auditioning in New York really uh, disillusioned you of the whole, you know, actor life. Uh, so many times, you know, especially in New York, you are one of 10 trillion people wanting the exact same thing. And so there's, I think, as far as being an actor, that's the one part of the process that feels more dehumanizing than anything. Yeah, in my opinion, I, I, I agree. And I also think it's where I was in my life. So I think that's where I had the idea of like, I had to be a certain way to make it. Um, I had to be an ingenue or am I an ingenue, my character actor? I don't think I'm an ingenue, so I'm a character actor. So what does that mean? So what do I need to look like? How, what box do I need to check? And I really think that was very limiting to me instead of just being like, here's who I am. Here's what I want to do. Um, that, I think that's part of what made auditioning stressful for me, you know, if that makes sense. Um, but oh, totally. that's something I'm actually looking forward to doing more now of. So I don't know if I told you, but um, so I've been education director here at the theater for like 20 years, um, mostly for free. And then as a stipend <laughs> capacity, so not for profit, you know, and it kind of became right, bigger. right. But, um, I'm actually stepping down from that position in about two weeks or so um, to free up more time for myself to I don't know what. I'm in a place of I don't know. Um, but hopefully perform, maybe write, um, maybe do some acting, I, maybe teach more. I don't know. Um, but I'm looking at what is it I want to spend my time doing? And I think I want to go back and maybe, I don't know, act more, go back to audio. I don't know. Um, but I'm open to it in a way that I wasn't for a long time before. I love that. Yeah. It's getting comfortable in my own skin was what yeah. it was. Right now. I think a lot of times we all kind of go through when we get older, this rediscovery period. Cause I know I definitely went through that uh, too. Yeah. Uh, I remember in 2020, the most unbelievable thing happened to me. I turned 40 yeah. and I remember having this feeling of like, wow, I'm, I'm 40. And I started to have this feeling like, you know what? I don't want to be in my seventies or eighties and then ask what if, mm -hmm. You know, what if I actually tried to do the things that I wanted to do? And so that's kind of where I'm at now. I'm also kind of going through that rediscovery and just try it so that at least down the road, if nothing comes from it, I could say, well, at least I gave it a shot. Yes. We say that all the time, don't we? But it's hard to believe it. We're like, oh, fail fabulously, right? It's okay to risk and fail and reinvent. And it's hard to do. It's hard mm -hmm. to put yourself out there. Like, what if? Um, but I love that for you, too. And I see you doing that with your magic and your podcasts and your teaching and your performing and like all of these different 
ways that you're throwing your out, yourself out there. It's crazy that we ask children at like 17 to 19, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I think that's an antiquated way of thinking where there was a time where you'd be like, I'm a teacher. And that was what you did. Or mm -hmm. I am... Um, I am a banker and that was what you did. And you put in your time and you get your gold watch and you retire. And I think that now we're at this place where people have multiple careers. We, we have multiple discoveries. We get to pursue different passions. And I don't think it was always like that. I think it's becoming more the norm, but it's still a very scary thing to say, I'm going to leave this thing that I thought I wanted to do or the thing that I went to college for, for a lot of people in many cases and try something new. I don't even know if I'm good at it. I don't even know if people are going to like it, um, but there's so much freedom in that. Yeah. Good for you, man. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, thank you, my friend. Yeah. So you went to UCB, you saw a show there, you saw Amy Poehler. Yeah. What was it about that show that really made you go, wow, this is something I want to get more of. Um, for me, it was seeing people collaborate. I've thought about that. Like that was another moment where I was living in New York. Um, we were living paycheck to paycheck, Nate and I. Um, I was like, I don't think this is working. We're looking at moving back. And the thing that I went to New York for, like that creative energy I lost sight of, I wasn't able to do it, right? Or I didn't make time for it. I'm not going to blame New York. It's where I put my focus while I was there. And I saw these people playing and just imagination and the teamwork and how quickly they supported each other. And I went, I remember that. I want that. Here's my credit card. <laughs> I don't regret it. Take my money. Take my money. Honestly. Yeah. Um, I, it, 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 it reignited that passion for me. And I can't remember coming back to Florida and, you know, getting the email, Oh, you got into the 501 and being like, cool. And called a friend and stayed on her couch for like, I think it was three weeks to go through the 501, then moved back home um, and just started pounding the pavement. Is there long form? Hello. Like I was emailing people in Orlando, uh, people in West Palm. It's how I found just the funny. Uh, the first thing I did um, when I moved back to Florida was like, try to find long form. And I saw that Susan Messing was doing a workshop at just the funny theater. And I signed up and went and I met whole bunch of amazing people. It's just the funny. And then Christy Webb did a workshop and I did that there. Um, it was just too far to, for me to get involved with regularly, you know, the drive. Mm -hmm. um, but that was my first sort of, okay, people are doing this outside of New York. And so I'm grateful for that. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. What was it like going through the UCB training programs? Um, you know, I had a really good experience. I really did. I liked it. Um, it was there was this competitive aspect to it because so many people, especially past the one-on-one were there to be a writer for SNL, get on SNL, like uh, get on a house team. Like there was a sort of end game. And so you knew that you had to get appro uh, instructor approval to like go to the next one. And there was, there was this kind of, I've really got to shine here sort of aspect um, that I don't miss. <laughs> <laughs> like I knew I was moving back to Florida, but because I wanted to move through it in order to go through it, I knew I just had to get instructor approval just into the next class and, you know, just keep going because I had a deadline. And so I, I was fortunate in that I did, you know, I was able just to kind of go through the programs, but it was, it was enjoyable. I, I loved it. It brought me life. I, I really enjoyed it. I loved the showcases. I had really excellent teachers. I studied with, um, Anthony King and Shannon O'Neill and Michael Delaney and Joe Wengert and um, 
Eric Tanui and trained with Anthony Antomanac and um, Dynamo. And I just had some really good training when I was there. I didn't quite realize it so much at the time, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. But it was, it was, I will say, you know, it was kind of a cutthroat aspect. Like I, as the classes continued, the men, it was more male dominated. It was very white. Um, and so there was sort of a, you kind of had to elbow your way to get out there a little bit. Um, I think it gave me a quote unquote masculine energy improvising, which people have said meaning is a compliment, which I'm like, ugh, um, is that a compliment? But I kind of did what I needed to do to get stage time and not be named a sex worker. Oh, girl, not be named um, somebody's mother in every scene and just get tagged out, you know, just sort of tagged out. So I kind of had to fight my way, which I think is problematic of improv in general, but was good for me as an improviser. But I think a lot of people probably weren't um, – weren't able to do that or didn't have that experience. And so I think that's why we see improv that is still, I would argue, even though there's a lot of women and non-binary people and whatever, I would argue that it's still very white centric and male centric and cis centric. You know what I mean? Heteronormal. Yes. Um, how we do improv and how we teach improv. It's, I mean, it's where, you know, aside from Viola Davids, it's kind of where it comes from, right? There's this, you know, guy and a couple of other guys were like, this is how you improvise. And it doesn't leave a lot of room for people who maybe don't speak that language, that cultural language, that gender language. And so I think we do see that changing, which I'm here for, which I freaking love the improv just because we learned it this one way doesn't need to look like that. It shouldn't look like that. It should keep growing and expanding. And just because something isn't how I would do it doesn't mean it's not valuable. Um, boy, did I go on a tangent. What was the question? <laughs> I'm the worst LD. Um, I'm never getting invited to do a podcast again. Uh, no, but all that to say, I think it kind of shaped me as an improviser. And I think it points out that improv should change and can change. Yeah. yeah. You know, I remember back in the day, and I'm sure you can speak to this as well. Um, to be recognized as a strong woman player back then meant that you were basically willing to let guys do whatever they want to you on stage. Wow. And yeah. And, and you, you were certainly correct. You know, back then, if you were a woman, you were, you were a mom. And if you were a mom, you were doing, you were taking care of the kids and cooking, or you were a nun, or you were a nurse, never a doctor. Or you were, like you said, a, so a, prostitutes. a prostitute. So yeah. many prostitutes. Um, you know, I never experienced that. And yes, I believe it. Because I've had so many um, women improvisers say that. Um, I think I was considered a strong player early on because I I didn't let, like, I, I agree with you, by the way, for a lot of people. But I didn't let, like, guys do whatever they wanted. I fought against that. And I would I would take on a very masculine energy for lack of a better term. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah. Yeah. I think there's two yeah. ways to sort of be seen as a good player kind of back in the day. And also not just back in the day, I think now too. And I think that the playing field has leveled out much more with um, the genders, but I still think it's an issue with different cultures and different ethnicities and how we tell stories and all of that. I think that's again, something that's unfolding and getting better, but for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I do think we are still growing. You know, I mean, we're not completely yeah. there yet. We still got ways to do, to go, but we're getting somewhere, I think. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Yeah, and that's that's the whole thing. We just need to keep getting better. I think the danger is being like, all right, we have equal parts, men, women, and people of color on our team. We're done. And it's not about that because if mm -mm. It's like what you said, tokenism, 
right? If I'm going to be a woman in the scene to serve this, or if I'm a black person or a person of color, and I'm going to be used in the scene as this device, that's problematic if we're there to serve the greater good and check off a diversity box or what have you. But I agree. I do think we're getting better and yeah. we just need to keep going. What can I do better? What can I do yeah. better? Does everybody- yeah. And I love seeing how like for women, they're they're finding more strength and be able, being able to say no than yes. You know, no, I won't just let you do whatever you want to my body or no, I won't just be someone who's unimportant. And I tell women in my classes all the time, you, you can claim your power. You do not have to be anyone's second banana. You have just as much importance as any of these other guys on stage. And I love seeing women just like be powerhouses and show that, you know, I don't need to do what what you're what you're what you think I need to do. This is me and this is what you're gonna get, folks. Hundred percent. And I think it's important that we set the tone as directors and coaches and improv teachers, just like you said. Um, I give permission my first class, whether it's a one-on-one or a drop-in or whatever I'm teaching. I'm like, you always have permission to leave a scene. If someone puts you in a situation that is inappropriate or you're not comfortable with, or you know, something happens. And the power of yes and is often misconstrued where we feel yes. like, well, oh, I've got a yes and this offer. Fuck no. Oh, there's the explicity where I just, right. You said it was set to explicit. There it is. We just used it. Um, but yeah, no, hell no. We don't need to do that. Um, yes. And isn't, you know, agreeing to everything. It's, a, it's an offer. It's a reality. It's what does my partner want versus the character. And I think mm-hmm. that's often misunderstood, but in the name of yes. And I do not need to put myself in any position. And I'm like, you can correct it. You can call it out. You can leave. You don't need to justify it. You don't need to, um, to apologize for it, but there is power in that. And I've done it. Listen, I remember doing a, a jam years ago when I was new, where I had a guy grope me on stage. Uh, Oh, gosh. Yeah. And I called it out on stage. It was a a jam in front of an audience at a fest years and years and years ago. Oh, forever ago. Um, Not yours. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now I would have, listen, it would have been a very different reaction. But I called it out and, um, you know, flipped it in a way that worked with the scene, I wouldn't have that patience. I wouldn't have the patience this, this day to do it. Cause that's, you know, in fucking appropriate. Um, but I, the stories I've heard, um, I don't think I experienced it that much, but the stories I hear from other improvisers um, who tend to not be straight, cis white men, no offense to straight, cis white improvisers. Most of them I think are great. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I realize that we have a responsibility to teach what we'll put up with and how to deal with it ahead of time. These are the expectations. Anything else will not be allowed. Um, And the people who might try to pull some of that crap won't pull it. And the people who might not know how to deal with it have tools to deal with it. But bottom line, you don't have to deal with it. Yeah, we get to do what's appropriate and what isn't, what's acceptable and what isn't. But, oh, girl, I'll pull a blackout so quick if I'm at an improv show and something happens. (laughs) I don't care. I have no tolerance. I have no patience anymore. Something that came with age and experience, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I would even go as far to say that a lot of times no is simply yes and in disguise. Absolutely. What does my partner want me to do? Listen. I know you keep been robbing people all week. You've taken my lunch money all week. Please don't take my lunch money. I need this lunch money. If I don't have this lunch money, my life, please take the lunch money. But your, your partner is saying, please take the lunch money, right? Like, yeah, yeah. you have to listen to what's behind it. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So when you got back to Florida, what did you, what did you do? Mm, went back to waiting tables for a long time and yeah. not for like a long time, but that was the first thing I did, right? TGI Fridays, listened, they, they transferred me from place to place and I was figuring out my life. Um, mm-hmm. I continued teaching for actors rep. And then one day I was like, I don't want to wait tables anymore. I love teaching. I don't want to, I, I'm, I, no, I'm not doing this. And so I told Nathan, we weren't married at the time. We've been together for like 20 something years. Um, we've only been married 10 or 12. I'm bad at math. Um, but um, I was like, I'm not going to do this anymore. He's like, no worries. I got you. And I just kind of put myself out there and it's like, Hey, I want to hire an acting teacher. And this job sort of grew, you know? And um, yeah, now that's what I do. And I'm, I'm so grateful. <laughs> it's stupid. Yeah. It's stupid how I get to pay the bills. It is. I'm grateful. Like that's, I, I get to teach different people at different levels, different ages, different backgrounds, different abilities. So much of what I do now is teaching people of all abilities. Um, I work for the down uh, gold coast down syndrome organization. Um, I do autism camps um, as well as all different kinds of audition prep or whatever. And it's neat to be able to recognize that it's all the same. I do not teach differently. And this is crazy, but it's all the same. Like I am not a different person with um, a Down syndrome class as I am with a youth class, as I am with an adult scene study class. Um, yeah. Teaching is just at the base, giving people permission to risk yeah. and fail, you know? Yeah. I did it again. Did- LD. I just go in these tangents. Like, I- Don't worry about it, please. <laughs> And that's why I love tuna salad. Next question. <laughs> well, thank you, Kat. We're out of time. <laughs> Two parts tuna, one part mayonnaise. Yeah. Now part four of Cat Kenny's interview. <laughs> I, listen, I could have an all inter- whole interview where all I do is talk about what I eat. I love to eat. So if you ever do a podcast on that, you let me know. <laughs> Oh, you'll be the first person I talk right, to if I do right, that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I never asked you this. Um, how did you come across Actors Rep? So when I was, so Bob Carter is the artistic director of Actors Rep. And when I was at the Burt Mills Institute for Theater Training, when I was a teenager, he was the YAG director, the Youth Actors Guild, in which I got involved in theater. And we kept in touch. And he's sort of, he's my family. He's my non-blood family. He let us borrow his truck when he moved to New York. Those were the classes I started teaching at in the summer and they brought actors rep back. And so when I moved back, I started teaching here more and just kind of was like, this is a place I want to make my home. And um, yeah, but I go back, I've known Bob since I was 13 years old. He actually officiated the wedding, co-officiated the wedding with Nathan and I when we got married in 2011. Um, Yeah. So he is, he's like family. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah. I've never actually, I've seen him there the times that I've been there, but I've never like actually met him or had a conversation with him, but he seems like a, he seems like an all around good person. He is. I like him. You know, like we've been in each other's lives for such a long time, for such a long time. So yeah. Yeah. I like him a lot. So when you began uh, really jumping into teaching, what were some of the things that you discovered about yourself that you didn't discover before as a teacher? So looking back, and this is something I've talked about with the different improv teachers. When I first started, I didn't know my own voice as a, as a teacher. I didn't have my own point of view. I did that thing that I think a lot of improv teachers do where I taught improv how I was taught it or kind of not exactly. It's not like I did a UCV program or whatever, but I really was like, this is how you teach an improv class. 
Um, and it took me a little bit to find my own voice, to be like, who am I as a teacher? But I did similar to, this is something I'm, I'm hearing myself, you know how you talk and you're like, oh, this is a pattern in your life. Similar to leaving the actor training program and feeling like I had to be a certain way or figure out who I was to be an actor. I think I felt like I had to be a certain way to teach improv. Um and realizing that I didn't was incredibly freeing. And that was a process for me. I think the person, I'm going to give a shout out to Tara Francisco, but one of the people who I feel like gave me permission, whether she knows it or not, to be my full authentic self was Tara. Um, I took the IO intensive that just the honey, just the honey, just the honey, just the honey, honey. yes, um, just the funny hosted um, all those years ago. And I was in the Sharna Halpern group and I had one day like one afternoon with Tara Francisco, We did like a little cycle swap. And I was like, oh, she reminds, I'm not saying we're the same, we're not person at all, but her energy was so similar to mine. Um, and I was like, and she's not, she's just teaching as herself and it works. And it was then that I realized I could be my whole hippy dippy, um, you know, sort of, um, I don't know how else to put it, hippy dippy authentic self and it worked and I could teach and I could be compassionate and give notes and, and just lean into who I was. And that was a process for me of not feeling like I had to be like somebody else. I was like, I can just do me. And that was a powerful place for me to. I, I do see a bit of Tara in you. I will say, I, I do see a little bit of Tara in you. We're totally not influence. the same, right? Like we're totally different humans, but I just, and there's a style and how she taught. And I was like, she does it. If she does it. I can do that. That's yeah. Because I wanted, I want to be me, and that's when I became the best version of myself as a teacher. It took me a while, you know, and I'm still growing. I'm still learning. I look back on some things and go, oh, I wish I'd done that differently. I wish I would have done that, you know, differently. Um, but I love, yeah, just growing and getting better. But yeah, being the most authentic version of myself made me the best version of myself as a teacher. Yeah. Same here. I think when I started teaching like you, I didn't really have a, a voice yet and I wasn't really that interested in teaching, but I just kind of did it because we were at a point where we had, we had just moved into our new theater, which we're currently at. And we were quite small back then and there was a need for teachers. So I'm like, well, I've been here a while. So, okay, I'll just jump into it. Um, do you remember the first class you ever taught? And were you nervous when you taught that class? Yep. So I remember being in a car in Salt Lake City, uh, visiting Nate's parents. They live not in Salt Lake City, but a different place in Orem. And Nate's mom being like, so what are you going to do? Like now that you're moving back from New York? And I was like, I don't know. And I couldn't even imagine it. But I was like, you know what I'd love to do? I'd love to teach improv. That's what I'd love to do. And I don't know if that'll ever happen. <laughs> um, and so I was in Florida for a while. And I'm like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to hold a class. And so I just put a class together at Bob Carter's little studio behind his house. Like I put it on Facebook. He had some acting students who took it. And it was like a an eight week class or a six week class. And it was Nathan was in the class and Lincoln and Jahan and Flo. And I think it was a class of like five people. I'm missing someone. There were five people. And that was my very first class. And it was just sort of a standalone, like improv 101 basic class. I can tell you I do a billion things differently now. Um, but I was nervous as hell. Um, I was like, I don't think I'm ready to start teaching. And truly, I probably wasn't quite. I guess there's that fine thing with improv where you want to be, I think a lot of people do start teaching 
probably before they should. I do believe that with improv. But then there's also that thing where it's like start before you're ready. So it's finding that sweet space, right? That sweet spot. Um, I hope I did that. I think I did it. But when I tell you, I was just so nervous. And that's what I did for like a couple of years. It was just kind of a couple of years of put these classes together, whether it was like a one day drop in or, you know, a six week or eight week class and different groups of people would come in. And there wasn't like a path. We didn't have improv shows at the theater. We didn't, I was just teaching, but that was how I kind of earned my stripes as a teacher, but I did not feel ready. I probably wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had that same feeling the first time I taught, I'll, I'll share this. Um, David gave me a, a, an outline of, of what we're supposed to talk about in the lesson. Mm-hmm. So I had a group of like, I think it was like six or seven uh, young people. And I'm, you know, it's my first time teaching. So I'm trying to keep it as positive as I can. And I'm going through the, 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 the syllabus and the students are having a great time and they're enjoying themselves. And then I'm halfway down through this, through the syllabus and I'm going, okay, everybody, uh, uh, why don't we take a break? And then everyone just kind of looks at each other weird. Like what, why? And I was weirded out at first. I'm like, Oh, you guys want to keep going? Like, yeah, let's keep going. And I couldn't understand. And then I looked out at my watch and I went, Oh shit. I've only been teaching for 15 minutes. Oh, I love that. Oh, that is hilarious. LD That is wonderfully human because you're like, I did it. I'm doing it. Let me regroup my thoughts. Mm -hmm. God, that's such a great story. That yeah. was so fun. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, David has definitely helped me get better as a teacher. But like you, I think throughout the years, I have definitely found my voice as a teacher. So I have a you question know? for you. What is – what I, I feel like finding your voice and finding your, your point of view as a teacher is such an individual thing. For you when you're teaching, what is like your primary focus? Like what is the thing that's most important, whether it's improv-based or experience-based? Like what is the thing that's important to you? to impart upon your students? You know, one of my priorities is to show my students how they are more than capable of doing this. Yes, girl. Yes. Because, you know, we, I mean, I'm sure you've had the same experience. We get people in our classes that are not actors. We get nurses. We get engineers. We get IT people. We get a lot of lawyers for some reason. And <laughs> yeah, true. I don't know what it is. Lawyers love improv, you know? I mean, hey, who am I to judge, you right, know? Right. But I really love to be able to show students that there is something that they have inside them and it's special and all they have to do is, is let it out. And I can't tell you, Kat, how much I see that transformation in people when they make that realization of, yes, I I can do this. Yes, I'm just as good as all these other people. No, I don't have to prove myself to anybody. I just have to prove it to myself. And I love the idea of helping my students celebrate themselves. And I say celebrate themselves both individually and as a group. Yeah. Because I also want them to have that feeling of not only am I be not only am I be able to create this special thing, I'm able to create the special thing with all of you guys together. I love that. I'm over here nodding emphatically, and I realize that anyone listening to the podcast can't see that. <laughs> Yes, like snapping. Absolutely. No, I agree. I'm more interested in giving people creative freedom than I am about somebody improvising well. And I know that's kind of a weird thing to say, but like, even when we get to like advanced scene work classes where people are performing, um, that matters. Don't, right? You want good improv. And I think that you can give really solid, constructive notes. 
um, and still value meeting people where they are. Um, yeah. Right. Like not everything needs to be right or wrong or good or bad. And that's like, I, I, that resonates what you said hundred percent. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I I've developed this new philosophy that I tell myself both before I teach and before I do any sort of show, my new phrase that I tell myself all the time is it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be me. Yes. I love that. There's no such thing as perfect anyway. Right. Even the saying, no, there isn't. It's perfect. Practice makes better. <laughs> I like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you can think about it uh, logically too. I mean, how could you do something perfect that you're supposed to make up off the top of your head every single time? You know, and we give people permission. I say fail fabulously all the time. It's sort of like thing I, the thing I say, because we talk about failing. It's okay to fail. It's okay to risk. If you're going to fail, celebrate it. Um, and I think we extend that grace to students. I think we extend it often to our fellow castmates. It can be hard to extend to ourselves when I fail, when I just face plant creatively in front of an audience or in front of a class, because it happens in different capacities, right? Yeah. Um, and just extending that grace to ourselves. Man, I've been on stage and just flubbed. Just, I remember one show forever ago, shout out to Casey Casperson and Sick Puppies, years ago when he was at that space in Boca, he had friends with benefits come by for a show. And I've never had a more out-of-body experience. And it was so grounding for me as a teacher to be like, is this what it feels like? I'd been improvising forever, you know, at that point, not forever, but a long time, very comfortable. And I had an outer body experience, like you are walking downstage, you are picking up the 10 glass. <laughs> it was the worst thing I've ever done. And I, I can't tell you why it happened. Um, but yeah, we have to be extending <laughs> that grace to ourselves, you know, when it happens. I've had it happen at festivals. I did a, a show at the Gainesville Improv Festival years ago, and it we just crashed. The form didn't work. It like it was a sold out house, and I was like, "Oh, this just isn't working." Um, and that's it. We really get to be okay with that, you know, yeah. it's ideal. But we get to be okay with that and go, "Why did that happen? How does that help me as a teacher? How does that help me as a performer?" And not, yeah, and that's all just part of the process of growing. Yeah. That's all just part of the process of growing. Yes, like like I, I keep telling people all the time. The first time I I played a festival with my solo show, I actually hated it because I thought it was terrible, oh. and I went through a whole thing of. Well, I, I guess I'm not good at this, but then I had to finally just leave myself alone and go, you know what? I can beat myself about this or I could see what can I learn from this failure and then grow from it. Yep. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, it's all a process. It's all a process. You know, and Rizowski says that, right? To quote David Rizowski, he said, improv is the only art where the product is the process or something like yes. that. And it's true. And it, it's not just that night. It's the process of being an improviser. It's the process of being a human. Um, and the more yes. we get into that, I think the more comfortable we get putting ourselves out there, stepping into the unknown um, and really being willing to fail. And it's it sucks. It sucks when we fail, right? And just it can feel terrible. And just going, all right, what's the worst case scenario? I'm still here, right? And using that to help us in the future. Yeah, right. And if you think about it, what really is a is a failure in improv that the audience doesn't laugh? I mean, is that really such a bad thing? You know? Yeah, a hundred percent. I'm more interested these days in um, more than anything creating a space where everybody is heard and everybody is safe and performers feel like they have a spot and everyone feels welcome. You know how you sometimes go to fests or you go to like improv places and you feel like 
there's the cool kids and then there's you yeah. you're like this the, the high school thing again full circle ld full yeah, circle exactly. right there are groups um i'm more interested in just like, we don't need to prove ourselves right because festivals can sometimes feel like you got to get on stage and prove that you deserve that slot if you have a good oh slot. god yeah or prove that you should have gotten a better slot if you don't have a good all that bullshit that goes along with it um it can happen at theaters too and that's what I'm really interested in, again, is more than anything, just, you know, telling, make, letting people know and walking the walk that you are enough and you belong, regardless where you are. The other stuff, like you said, it's it's not as important to me. I love when an audience freaking loves the show. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> of course. Of course. That is important. I want a good product. I want a well-produced show. I want people to be coming back because they know we do good work. Um and more important to me than that lately is creating an environment where people belong because they do, you know? Yeah. One of the things that I've loved about improv is that it really is for everybody and everybody belongs. And, you know, there's, there's a, there's a door for everybody. Yeah. And, and, you know, one thing I really admire that you guys do at Actors Rep is that you have a workshop specifically for members of BIPOC uh, communities, which I think is, is a really such a great, just such a great idea over around and such a wonderful thing that you do. What has that experience been like to like welcome all these members who you would not normally see in a, in a big time theater or, or at a festival? We should have done it a lot sooner is what I see. There was so much fear attached to doing it that I didn't realize was fear in the beginning for me. And during the pandemic, I remember watching all of these different, like listening to podcasts and different talks on social media, socially distant improv about the BIPOC community and the LGBTQI plus, you know, community doing stuff. Um, and I think it was John Gerbatros. Am I saying his name right? John, I'm going to mispronounce his name. Probably. A huge theater. And he was like, you know, you just... There's this, I'm paraphrasing, but it was like, what we see a lot of is theater directors or theater coaches or whatever, like holding on, like, well, what if the quality isn't good? Well, what if all of these what ifs? And that's what I was doing. And that's BS. That's gatekeeping. It's the idea of this is how I would do it and just letting go. And so when I was like, hey, let's do this at the theater. Um, I don't teach it, right? Roslyn teaches it. She teaches it differently than I would, I'm sure, right? Um, and that's okay. <laughs> and she's a tremendous teacher. And it just letting go. I had all of these what ifs in the name of quality control, which is nothing but fear and gatekeeping and wanting mm -hmm. control over something I don't need control over. Um, but when we did it, man, it was um, virtual at first during the pandemic and people were coming from all over the country and different continents. We had people in Europe, people in India, people in Canada. Oh, wow. um, and then when we went back in person, they're like, all right, let's do this in person. And so we do it once a week. It's an hour and a half. Um, it's free exclusively for the BIPOC community. And from that, there have been different, um, we, we have a whole new house team called ADV Improv. Um, it's made up of you know, people from some people from the BIPOC class and they do short form and they're great. And they're looking at expanding and going out and like anything, there was a learning curve when they first started and that's okay. Um, yeah. I'm not interested in having a theater full of white people. I'm, I'm honest to God. I'm not like it has created diversity in our audiences, diversity on stage. It makes it more interesting. Um, and when you relinquish control, 
because that's what it is. Again, I'm going to go back to that. And it's hard to admit that to myself, but there was this like, I need control. What's it going to look like? It doesn't fucking matter. Oh, explicitly warning. <laughs> what it looks like to me. That's your fifth one, by the way. So don't worry. I'm doing terrible. Um, <laughs> living people tuned in just for that. We don't know. Um, but it needs to look different. Because as a white, straight, cis woman, I'm going to tell stories differently. I'm going to improvise differently than people who do not fit my my box, quote unquote, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I'm fascinated by seeing different kinds of improv and looking at what it looks like. And that's what's happened is our audiences look different. Our shows look different. The improv itself looks different. Um, they play games that we play differently. And I'm here for that. Um, it's nothing but good. So anyone who's on the fence anywhere listening to this, how do we make money? How, not everything has to be monetized. Um, it has come back to us like tenfold. I, I believe that. Um, if you want to look at it through monetary things, um, yeah, people sign up for other classes, right? People start going to other shows. It improves your audience. Um, and that's just the byproduct of creating space for everybody. Yeah, I love it. I should have done it sooner. I kick myself that I didn't. I think we're all kind of kicking ourselves that we didn't do something like this sooner. Yeah. And, you know, I remember last time I was there, I was there to um, to teach a workshop and do my solo show there. Yes. And I remember before I went up, um, a lot of those members of that uh, BIPOC workshop who had created their own house team, I saw their show and I'm thinking, man, I could see those guys headlining any festival. Because they were that good. And it's also great to see that it's improv in their own voice. Yes. And yes. yes. That's that's what I'm interested in dismantling is, and I'm not talking like white supremacy in the terms of like KKK, because we hear that and we tend to think in those terms. I mean, white supremacy and like, this is how we tell stories. This is how you put a team together. This is how you do edits. This is... I'm so interested in dismantling all of that, which is why we need more people who don't look like me, who, mm -hmm. who don't teach like I do, you know, and starting that class was the first step in all, it, it, you know, for, for me, my tiny, tiny little corner of the world. Um, Rosalind is amazing. I want to give her a major shout out. She just, she's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I, I love the idea of, anybody from anywhere walking into an improv show, sitting in the audience and thinking, I can do this too. Yeah. And I think that's what we should all be striving yes. for. Yes. And when you have representation, you want to do it. But for so long, if you like talking about like men in, in improv, if I'm the only woman on a team and I go to a show and I'm like, oh, maybe it's not really for me. If I'm the only person of color on a team or I'm a person of color in the audience or a black person, whatever, and I sit in the audience and there's no one on that stage who looks like me or maybe one person who is being tokenized, I go, that's not really for me. So part of getting people to come into this art form is seeing yourself represented on stage. You know, it just, it keeps mm -hmm. building. Yeah. 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 We're on our way. I think we're on our way. Yeah. There's always growing pains, of course, but we're on our way. Oh yeah. Yeah. We're, um, we're going to yeah. get it wrong. And that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Get it wrong. Do something. <laughs> yeah. You know, so as you look back on all of your years as a teacher, as a performer, and what you've learned and what you've been able to develop both for yourself and for others, what reflections come to you as you look back on your life story and where you are today? You know, I, I looking back even on this conversation, and the thing that resonates with me, and I've said this a little bit today, 
is um, give yourself permission to be your most authentic self. And I know that sounds just like a bunch of like mumbo jumbo somehow, like we say that a lot, but that has been the big thing for me is that I can perform how I want to perform. I can teach how I want to teach. I think we sometimes have this idea of like needing to like prove to people that we belong. If you show up and you are just consistently yourself and you're consistently extending grace and consistently doing good work, you will be fine. It's not a race. It's not a, I need to open this business and have high sales right away. Like if you're looking to open a theater, I just believe that if you are walking the walk and you are just being true to yourself and doing the best you can, that's, you will get to where you need to go. I took an hour to say that, by the way. It is. <laughs> that's quite all right. That's really, for me, that's what that's that's what I've learned. Um, and for me, it's been successful. I did not go into this being like, what's a persona that is going to work? And I think sometimes people do that. Like when I got out of college, that's what I did. Just do you. Just do you. Do the best you can. Admit when you F up admit it, like take that pie in the face, call it out, do better. And um, if you just consistently keep doing the work and showing up, I, I think that you have longevity, you know? Absolutely. Could not agree with you more. Yeah. Don't wear a mask. There's too many masks. Be you. Yeah. The right people exactly. resonate with that. Um, and yeah, let go of fear. That's the other thing. Be you, which I guess let's letting go of fear. I'm over being afraid that like, people don't think I'm good enough. I'm over being afraid. Um, oh, my students will go somewhere else. I have a list I give to all of my students when they take a class of every improv theater in South Florida, including drop-in classes, shows. I encourage them to teach, to take with different people, different points of view. Um, but I think sometimes we don't do that. I didn't when I first started because there's that fear of what if they like someone else better? That's okay. That is okay. Mm -hmm. We don't own students. We don't own people. We don't need to keep them. If we want to create a community and people who are the best versions of themselves and can do what I just said, which is be authentically themselves, then we should give them the resources to figure out who they resonate with and what that looks like. Um, and for me, it's just letting go of fear. Share everything. Share my lesson plans. Share students. Share space. Don't monetize everything. Fear, fear, authenticity. Yeah. Absolutely. Here's my final question for you, Kat. Purple. <laughs> and we're done. <laughs> uh, no, here's my final question. What's the one piece of advice that has served you well that you want everyone else to hear? Hmm. You know, there's so many pieces of advice. Um, I'm going to go with follow the fear. The thing that feels risky the thing that feels uncertain, like what if, do it. It's what you said earlier. The worst case scenario is that you do fail, but the what ifs will kill you. Follow your fear. Absolutely. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Kat, this has been such a blast. Thanks so much for talking to me Thank today. Thank you so much for asking me. Um, I love the parallels in our lives. And this has, this has flown by. Sincerely, thank you so much for, for asking me to do this. And I just wish you continued success in all the amazing things that you were doing. I see you. I see your hustle. I see your magic. I see your – I just – I'm impressed with everything you're doing and wish you continued success. Thank you. Same to you. I wish you so much success. And please give Nate a big hug for I me. I will. He's, he'd give them <laughs> back. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Kat. All right. Thanks, friend. 
follow your fear. Might sound scary, but Kat is so right about this. Be willing to jump into something that you feel passionate about, no matter how risky or uncertain it might feel. I've certainly been trying to apply that a lot lately, hence why I'm doing this very podcast. Huge big thank you to Kathleen Kenny for joining me today. Learn more about Bob Carter's Actors Workshop and Repertory Company by visiting their website, actorsrep.org, and learn all about their upcoming performances, improv shows, and their various classes and workshops. And as always, learn about my solo show, Together By Myself, at togetherbymyself.com. Contact me anytime to have me perform Together By Myself at your venue and for magic shows for all occasions. Thank you all so much for being here again with me. You're all very much appreciated and loved. Take care and hope to see you again on Improv and Magic. Thank you.